Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! What we are going to do is we are going to kick off a brand new message series. So uh, our message series is called uh, Biblio Idolatry. Um, which is a, a bigger kind of name. If you're unfamiliar with biblio-idolatry, the idea is that the Bible has become an idol in the lives of many people. Maybe for you growing up, or, or maybe just an understanding that you've, you've had of it or seen, but the Bible becomes, um, these are some of the seminary jokes. The Bible becomes the fourth member of the Trinity. Um, the Bible becomes the lens through which everything is seen and understood about the nature of who God is. And the Bible begins to hold this role and this space in our world, in our cultural reality, and in church, where it seems that because we're putting it at the pinnacle of the pyramid, it can only do good and beneficial things, but there's actually some really damaging things that come along with that. And so we're going to be exploring the Bible for a number of weeks. One of the big reasons why we want to talk about the Bible isn't to sit around, and, and just in case you get nervous when we call something biblio-idolatry, I just want to let you know where we're going and why we're doing this whole message series. The goal isn't to sit around and be like, the Bible isn't actually all that great, and people that really love the Bible are dumb, am I right? And then we all snicker at them that they still read the Bible in particular ways. No, the goal is by discovering the different lenses that we have been handed from birth, that we've been handed culturally and how to view the Bible, we might think, well, like, that's just the only way to do it. When in fact, if we zoom out a little bit and we look at the current cultural moment and understanding of the Bible, we can see, well, this is really just now. The Bible's been viewed and has been interpreted in lots of different ways over hundreds and hundreds of years. So how has the Bible been viewed? And if we can take off all these lenses and we can take off all these different kind of cultural and not take them off completely, but disentangle them, the hope is that we can actually fall back in love with the Bible. My own personal journey is I love the Bible like too much. It was my favorite thing to read. And I prided myself in, like, knowing so much about the Bible. And, like, you'd be in casual conversation. You'd be like, oh, yeah, it sounds like a real Samson situation. Oh, mind high five. That was a good Bible pull that I just did. And then if you hang out with other Christians and you drop little Bible jokes in there, oh, you feel so good. Here's one of my favorite. Um, if you are ever writing a get well card, you should put at the bottom of the get well card. You know how people put Bible verses to be encouraging? It's a sweet thing to do. What you should do is you should put at the bottom of them, Nahum 319. Because people will see a Bible verse and be like, oh, they care in my get well card. If you go and read Nahum 319, it says, there is no cure for your affliction. You will most certainly die. <laughs> and this is where it gets good. And when you die, all will clap. Because who has not felt your endless cruelty? I... <laughs> It's like that kind of knowledge of the Bible that you take this kind of perverse joy and like, yeah, there's like, you know, a general Bible verse. Like, that's encouraging. And then over time, I started to have a really conflicted relationship with the Bible. 
where it was harder and harder to read about this kind of sanctioned genocide after war. It became harder to read about these different kinds of violence throughout the Old Testament. It became harder and harder to take verses throughout Scripture and say, well, what do we do with these? It became harder and harder to disentangle what I was reading, what I was experiencing from it, from people that were saying, no, the Bible is talking about a 4,000-year-old earth where these people don't belong and women don't really belong and there's male headship and it's all about these things. And so I stopped reading the Bible, like altogether. And just in case you're curious, my entire adult life I've been a pastor. I rested on my knowledge of the Bible from before, but it wasn't something that I was reading and engaging. And when I started to go back to it, I would go back to just certain stories. Like if you're familiar with the Bible, there's a story about the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus encounters her, and they have all these religious leaders that want to stone her, throw rocks at her to kill her because she has been caught in the sin. And Jesus says, this famous biblical line, let the person who is out sin throw the first stone. I would go back to that story a lot in that stage because I trusted that story. And I was still uncomfortable with the rest of the Bible, but I trusted that story. I'm just starting to enter into a place where, with my relationship with the Bible Whereas I've let some of these lenses and I've let some of these cultural understandings of what the Bible mean fall away, now I have a renewed relationship with the Bible where I love it again. And see that first love and the falling out of love and the skeptical, I'll just engage this to falling back in love, the Bible never changed. We didn't get a new translation and I'm like, oh, finally, one I can read. But my understanding of what the Bible is and what the Bible is supposed to be changed a lot during the course of that time. And so that's our hope, as we have a number of people here that have a conflicted relationship with the church and with the Bible and with God. And at Cascade, we don't just want to say, well, yeah, it gets kind of crazy. We want to lean into the discomfort. We want to lean into those hard spaces where we really wrestle with what is Christianity and what are we all doing here? Because if it can't be redeemed, then really, what are we all doing here? If Christianity is unredeemable at its core, then this isn't a gathering worth participating in. And we don't want to just gather in with blinders on, ignoring large swaths of it. We actually want to lean into it and say, what is really here? What is happening? So, to help us understand some of this, we are going to look uh, a little clip um, from a Denzel Washington movie from 2010. Uh, has anyone ever seen the Book of Eli? Ever seen? Um, it's, eh, you know, so <laughs> some of you love it, and that is great. That is great. Um, I have a conflicted relationship with it. I guess that's a theme this morning. But here's the basic premise. It's this post-apocalyptic world where everything's gone, and Denzel Washington's character has the book, is what they call it. And it's the only copy of the book that exists on the planet. And there is a bad guy, played by Gary Oldman, obviously, uh, who is trying very hard to get it. 
And the people that are chasing after him with that are trying to discover why are we going after this book? And Gary Oldman kind of talks about it here in the clip. Let's watch. You wash the dressing pans twice with your soap. Put a crew together. We're going after him. It's not a book. It's a weapon. A weapon aimed right at the, the, the hearts and minds of the weak and the desperate. It will give us control of it. If we want to rule more than one small town, we have to have it. People will come from all over. They do exactly what I tell them if the words are from the book. It's happened before. And it'll happen again. So uh, I forgot to tell you that it was beeped out curse words, but you could still very much see it. So I must, everybody. That's retrospective. I must. I apologize for that. The book of Eli, the concept of this whole thing is that there is this book, which, spoiler alert, it's the Bible. The movie came out 10 years ago. It, sorry. I'm not apologizing for that one. The idea is that the Bible, he believes it is the ability to control people. And so he wants the Bible because this will ultimately give him the power to control nations and nations. And I think this really gets at our relationship to the Bible. See, culturally, when we have discussions about anything, um, it's not really a joke, but <laughs> one thing I think is funny is if we're talking about politics or leaders or issues of social justice, in my mind, it's like it's only a matter of time before we get to the Nazis. Because the Nazis are like the ultimate agreeable evil. We all agree that the Nazis are evil. So if I'm having a conversation with you and I really have to make a point, I'll just talk about the Nazis. Because it's the top shelf words and idea. And so much of our conversations, we grab at the top shelves of words and idea. I'm not uncomfortable. I don't have a want. I have a need. Or I'll die. This is the way that I make my point. And anytime we have any kind of political conversation or discourse, it always elevates to the highest level of disagreement. If we're talking about the country, it can boil down to love it or leave it. And when we have conversations about faith, the Bible has served because of its role culturally as the top shelf of debate. And so if you say, like, I don't know how I'm engaging with this aspect of Christianity, the conversation usually concludes with, well, the Bible says dot, dot, dot. It exists as this ultimate power and authority in our lives. And what's interesting about that is, is not that I don't think that the Bible shouldn't hold this really significant place in our faith. I absolutely do. But when it becomes the ultimate end of the road, this is what the Bible says, without any attention to what interpretation is, what context means for the Bible at its time, what reading a translation is, the Bible was not written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. You are reading a dubbed version of another show, <laughs> 
Have you ever been flipping around TV and you see an episode of Friends in Spanish? And you're like, wait a second. That's kind of our relationship with the Bible. It's been translated from other languages. It's been moved in other ways. And how that functions is that it's up to different people's interpretation, especially in the evangelical church, on how they view and interpret the Bible. Because largely, with a lack of denominational structures that we have today, which has a lot of benefits, but also a lot of takeaways, is our larger evangelical churches are non-denominational, and it is their particular interpretation of the Bible that has become the end of the road. This is what the Bible says. And so it's something worth talking about. It's something worth pulling the thread on. It's something worth looking at. So to talk about that, I, I want to define when we talk about this, what this ultimately is. There's a term for it, and it's called biblicism. And biblicism is an adherence to the letter of the Bible, an adherence to the letter of the Bible. That means that any disagreement, anything we have, we just go back and we read the Bible and we're going to come to the same conclusion. And ultimately, we can have any debate or disagreement that we want, but the Bible is going to be the final authority to tell us both what we should do. Now, as we're having this conversation, I kind of want to take a pause because we've created over the last number of months, we've talked about a new liturgical flow. And what that means is the way we kind of structure our service and go. At the beginning, if you were here, when we talked about why am I here and answering that question was part of our invitation to presence. What we want to do now at this stage and this stage of the conversation about the Bible is to create a hospitality to grief and sadness. Have you ever seen the Bible misused to harm another person? Have you ever seen the Bible used to exclude someone? Have you ever seen the Bible used to shame someone? Have you ever seen the Bible used in such a way as to perpetuate awful things? To be able to move forward and to say, well, why does biblicism matter? Or why are these things such a big deal? It's actually important to look at the impact of that lens that we put on if we wear that lens of what the Bible says, and there is no organized authority that says, and this is how we interpret it, so if it's interpreted by different congregations all throughout our country and our world differently, then the impact of that can often be really painful. And so um, what we want to do is to actually have a time to share that with one another. So we're going to have a time of discussion. You can say nothing, you can share a lot, but if you would turn to the people around you and share an experience, if you've ever had one where the Bible has been used in ways that were harmful, what happened? How was it used? How was it talked about? Uh, the one thing that we ask is when we have these kinds of conversations with one another is that if you would say your name, introduce yourself, and if you would make sure that no one's left out. If you see anyone that's kind of, if you would be able to pull people in and be able to talk and share, it's one of the ways that we can actually connect with one another. So if you're able to turn to one another and talk about a time or an experience you've had where the Bible was used painfully. I am interested to hear if any of you would be willing to share what, was some of, what were some of the things or the examples that got brought up in your groups? Anybody have any examples they'd be willing to share? 
Yeah. Yeah, the Bible has been used, if you weren't able to hear, the Bible has been used to disempower women for a very long time and to reinforce a patriarchy and uh, patriarchal roles within a family. It's been used to exclude people of the LGBTQ plus community. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Where sickness is a result of sin and not being healed is a lack of faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that death and dying, cancer, these kinds of uncontrolled realities in our world, if there's no one to blame, well, then it's God's will. This is what God wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Bible has a pretty hard no five-second rule rule in there. It's a, you know, there's a lot of those where you can't enter in the church with a daughter. Um, you can't cut your hair in this way. Um, I remember growing up, uh, like, if you were going to get a tattoo, I mean, you know, verdict's out, but uh, if you're going to get a tattoo, the Bible prohibits that. Haven't you read that passage? Um, yeah, and yeah, go ahead, Shelly. No, I want you to. Yeah. Yeah, immigration and refugees can't talk about it because that's not submitting to the laws of the land. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to see how did we arrive at these conclusions using this same sacred text? Again, the words of it never changed. But a document that is used by many to explain the abolition of slavery was used to support slavery for a very long time. And so how do we have these two different realities coming from the exact same book? So how, part of what we want to talk about now is just establishing when we say the Bible, what do we mean? Um, because one thing that is a, a trigger for me is when people are like, well, the Bible's pretty clear on X. I'm like, really? Because if we're just looking factually, what, what is the Bible? The Bible is actually 66 books. It spans 600 years of time, 1,600 years of time. So to put that in context, some of you are familiar with our Constitution. Our Constitution was created in 1787, 232 years old. Take that eight times over. That's the stretch of time that we're talking about in the Bible. And that happened about 3,500 years ago from now. 66 books with 40-ish authors. There's not a definitive number of who all wrote which books. They didn't sign them all. But when we talk about the Bible and the Bible having clarity, I would say that there's a coherent thread all throughout the Bible. There's many coherent threads of the Bible. It's not just scattershot. But to say that it's clear is actually to ignore the complexity of this beautiful Sager document. It's a lot of things and a lot of different times and a lot of different places. And, and even to say that, well, the Bible is clear about Jesus, he's like the namesake, right? Like this whole Christianity thing is about Jesus. Jesus says at one point, and I know this because it's written in the Bible, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. Why was he saying you have heard it said? 
It's because it's written in the Bible. So to say that the Bible is clear about these kinds of elements, when Jesus, kind of a big deal, is talking about an evolution in the way that we understand different concepts over time, that these things move. And what we really want to get at in through the midst of this isn't to denigrate the Bible, it isn't to pull it down, but it's actually to lift up our understanding of God. The goal, what Scripture should be pointing to, is who God is. And to stop with just the Bible and to say, well, this is actually the ultimate truth, this is the only way we encounter it, is to ignore the manifold ways that God is making God's own self uh, present in our lives every single day. Through our emotions, through our engagement with the world, throughout nature, throughout our relationships, throughout the presence of love and impossible circumstances. These are demonstrating the nature of God as much as the sacred text. And when we hold these things alongside, instead of creating a rank and file and how they're supposed to go, we actually see that the Bible becomes more powerful, not less. So, in talking about this, we're, we're going to talk a lot about the Bible made impossible. It's a, it's a book that helped frame uh, a number of this by a man named Christian Smith. But to, to kind of get at these different concepts of how we understand the Bible, I found an amazing video clip uh, from the 1970s that kind of very much captures this cultural moment of an understanding of the Bible. said it, I believe it, that settles. Well, at least they were saying that settles it for me. But God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That ultimately it's this incredible way of saying that there is no place for dialogue, there is no place for disagreement, because really the conversation took place a long time before us, and it is settled. What's interesting about that settling is that it's always on the side of whoever drops that killer line of the Bible said it. I believe that that settles it. So to that end, we want to kind of look at how did this get created? How, how did this worldview and what is it when we talk about this kind of biblicism? So we're going to go through a number of different understandings. I am not saying that these understandings are in total false in any way. But I want to explain, when we talk about biblicism, when we, want it, when we talk about our predominant relationship in Christian culture with the Bible today, what is it and where did it come from? The first is that the Bible is a result of divine writing. Divine writing is the Bible, down to the details of its words, consists of and is identical with God's very own words written inerrantly in human language. That inerrantly means that there are no errors in the Bible. So you can read the Bible from beginning to end, and you will not find a single error in any way. Descriptions of animals, descriptions of events, dates, all of them are exactly as they are to be written. And this is, even though not everyone would say it, that it's a dominant belief within Christian culture. 
that this is the role of the Bible. And again, these lists and the next two we look at, this is found in the Bible Made Impossible. This is uh, Christian Smith's definition of what biblicism is and what it involves. The second is total representation. Total representation means that the Bible represents the totality of God's communication to and will for humanity, both in containing all that God has to say to humans and in being the exclusive mode of God's true communication. Uh, I grew up with this fun little acronym. The Bible stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And I would hear a lot. Does anyone else? Okay, okay. There's a lot of people that heard that. People were like, huh? Uh, that, that understanding of what the Bible is was often taught to me is that when you are born, when you come into this world, to live your life without grounding it in the Bible is like trying to assemble some sort of very complex uh, furniture without ever consulting the instruction manual. And so the Bi if you're ever confused about anything, you go to the Bible, and the Bible will tell you what to do. Which, if you look at our study Bibles today, have you noticed that there's an index in the back where every mention of particular words are there? As a teenage boy, there was a lot of issues I was dealing with that I didn't quite find in the index. I was trying to find, like, where's the page where we really cover on this? Because an instruction manual is usually total in that way. The total representation view is it is all included in there. You don't see it. You can't understand it yet, but it's all in there. It's inerrant. It contains no errors, and it's the totality of God's communication with us. There's no need to go pray about it because you'll probably just hear your own voice. You trust Scripture because that will tell you God's voice. The last is that it's complete coverage. The divine will about all of the issues relevant to Christian belief and life are contained in the Bible. The church I grew up in, this was the foundation of the theology of the church. What we will talk about are the things in the Bible, and we won't talk about things not found in the Bible. Because this is our rule of life, and everything we need to know and deal with are found in the Bible. Now, in case you're like, wait, are we just saying like none of that's true or... Here's what we are saying, is that our understanding that that is what the Bible was written for, that's what the Bible is trying to reveal to us, and that's the way in which we use the Bible is probably more informed by our current cultural moment than certainly by the authors or the God informing it. Here's what I mean by this. We live in an age now, in case you haven't seen the results, science won, okay? Okay. We live in the scientific age. And so what this means is that we are more likely to trust information that can be repeatable and can be demonstrated through controlled studies that it is true. So no longer do we say, in case like, and we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about the history of biblicism and what are the different ways, that, what are the different relationships with the Bible culturally we've had over time. There was a huge raging debate over the nature of the solar system. People that said that the earth were not the center of the solar system were killed. Why? Because of the Bible. The Bible did not support that reality, so that could not be true. The earth had to be the center of the universe, which, if you've ever read the Bible, it doesn't go deep into astronomy. 
It doesn't talk a lot about the nature of the universe and whether the orbit of the planets. But under this framework of understanding how it works, we took the scientific model and we imposed it on the Bible. Are you with me? We took the scientific model. We can study and we can repeat and we can look at everything. We have this information and we just overlaid it on top of the Bible and said that's why the Bible was written. Here's one of my favorite examples of this. Have you ever been to a church service, like a Good Friday service, where you talk about the crucifixion of Jesus? And it's just a long, lengthy conversation about the number of witnesses and the means of crucifixion and how we know from this writing that we, we if, if you go into court, you only need two witnesses. We have hundreds of witnesses here in the Bible. This is why we know that Jesus was actually crucified and actually resurrected, because we have all this data. Now, if you are truly operating the scientific method, I'm not talking about faith. I'm not saying that these things didn't happen. If you were just to stay in science, one document purporting all the information is actually not one that you should trust. It's actually not enough data. But what happened was we took, oh, there's this scientific understanding, and if we talk in that language, we can convince people of what this book is trying to say and where the sacred text is leading us if we just blend them and make them the same thing. To say that is what the authors of Scripture had in mind, I think, is a huge, huge leap. And we're going we're gonna to look at this in just a little bit, and some of the references, especially in the New Testament, we call it the New Testament. When they're talking about the scriptures and the holy scriptures, they are not referring to their letters. That's what makes up a majority of the New Testament is letters. We're reading mail. When they talk about the holy scriptures, they're talking about the Torah. They're talking about what we would call the Old Testament, the First Testament. This is what they're referring to. But because of our lens of putting it is this total thing, we wrap it all into one. And clearly they were talking about themselves. They were talking about this writing. Another way that this comes into function is that because we live in an age where science has won, is that we believe things are truer, and the way that we access truth is kind of an underlying assumption in most of our society is if it is accurate and proven. So I'm going to believe a newspaper article if it's written in a timely matter with eyewitnesses who are quoted and can demonstrate. And even then, societally, we've reached a point now where we're like, eh, maybe people can be deceptive. You show me a video, now I'll believe it. And we've implanted that lens over Scripture, which, if you think about it for a second, what we are saying there is the way that we access truth in this world is through data. The way we have an understanding of who we are and how the world works is through proven scientific data. I, if you allow me for a second, this is just my own thing. I'm a big fan of the new Bon Iver album because I'm a white male who lives in Portland. <laughs> There's a song called Faith that I really enjoy. And I want you to, I want to read the lyrics to you from the song. Am I dependent in what I'm defending? Oh, that's a good line. Do we get to hold what faith provides? Hold your hands into mine. Do I believe in seeing every time? 
I know it's lonely in the dark, and this year is a visitor. And we have to know that faith declines. I'm not out all the way. I love this song. It resonates something deep within me every time I hear it. It makes me cry in the car sometimes when I'm listening to it. Is this song true? Is this song true? Did this actually happen? Do we have video evidence? No. It's poetry. And oftentimes the way that I encounter truth and beauty in this world isn't through scientific data and studies, although I greatly appreciate them. I experience truth through other means. And so it's important for us to address that most of the truth that has transformed the lives of us here in this room is not through scientific data. And yet, to say that we've experienced truth through the Bible, we feel the need to put that lens back on it. Why? Why? There's a deep truth and resonance in music, in poetry, in film, through experiences that we've had. Experiences we can't explain. I mean, one of my favorite theologians, John Wesley, he, was, he started a group called the Holiness Group. How nerdy is that? A holiness group where they just studied the Bible every single day. And you know what he says? All of his writing and all of it, none of that changed him. He stepped into a church one night and he heard them reading about the Bible, and he said, I felt a strange warmness in myself. And this led to his transformation. This led to his work. It wasn't because he heard an excellently argued structure of the Bible and why it was inherently true. Something happened within him. And so if we can release the Bible from this understanding, and we're going to talk next week on why historically we can. When we look at the context of the writers, we can find something deeply beautiful and true when we go back and read it and don't hold it to the standards that we do of newspaper articles and other writings. We can find that there's something beautiful and transformative there when we set it free, when we let it out of this prison that we've held it in because we think it gives it more power when it's actually robbed so much of the power from it. And it's created a lot of pain and violence in our world. What we want to do with that and this understanding is that we want to share in communion together. The reason why I want to do communion now is it's this, also like scripture, it has this deep historical roots throughout all the whole history of Christianity. This meal has been shared. For 2,000 years, people who are pursuing this understanding of who Jesus is have gathered together and taken bread and juice, and they've had it together. And it's been deeply transformative because it's true? Yeah. Because it's factual? Huh? It's the wrong lens to put on it. It's the wrong definition to put over it. Is communion factual is a question that doesn't make any sense. But is it true? Oh, it's deeply true. 
And that deep truth is speaking and resonating in us as a community when we participate it in ways that we see and we know and ways that remain a mystery to us. And so how we participate in communion here is we invite people to stand in a bit and you'll come in the front and grab the cup and the bread. There's also gluten-free wafers available to you. And part of this is that this is an open table involved, to a, a, an invitation for every single person here. And you're also free not to receive if you don't not in a place of doing that today. But my hope is as you take the bread and the juice, that you would contemplate what is deeply true in this world. And what deep truth you have encountered at different places in your life and knowing or believing that there is a God who is present in this world, who loves and sees and sits with us in the midst of it all. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to stand and come.